This is Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. This season digs into the truth of Genesis 1 through 12, a series we're calling God of the Ages. We look here at the, the, the second uh, week. It was two weeks ago prior to our Thanksgiving service that we looked at our understanding of our world of diversity, our diverse world with diverse cultures, diverse languages, diverse worldviews. But we have an understanding from Genesis uh, 9, 10, and 11 that there is a common root to our diversity. There is a common root of the diversity that we see around us. Have you ever tried to explain to your kids what life was like before the internet or the interweb, as some people like to call it? Life before the internet. I I tried to explain to my kids that when we had a a research project, when we had a, a paper that we needed to write, we would actually have to go to something called a library, right? And we'd go to these long volume, you know, set of volumes of books called encyclopedias, right? And you have to find the letter that your subject starts with. And, you know, maybe you'd get to photocopy some of those. And some of you are like, photocopy? What? You know, that wasn't around when I was a kid. We had to handwrite everything, you know? But, but, you know, you'd, you'd, uh, for me, we'd make photocopies of these things, and then you go back and you make your note cards and things like that. And I try to explain that to kids today. I try to explain to, to kids life without cell phones, right? It's like we could only use our phones in our house or in a, a business or, or in a booth, right? And not just that. But we were connected to a wall, you know, and maybe your kitchen phone had like that 20-foot long cord that, you know, uh, somebody decides they want to finally sit down on the couch and somebody's going to get clotheslined by it as they walk through the room, right? And, and, but, but try to explain those things. And similar to this is we have explained to us in these chapters of Genesis epochs of time that we can't comprehend, such as an epoch of time in which all of the world had the same language. All of the world had the same culture. There were different kindreds, different kinships, different families, but all of the world had the same basic culture and language. And and we think that's crazy talk. And we, just to, to look back two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the fact that the sons of Noah and Noah himself, uh, Noah himself was the common root of all of the diversity that we see in the world. And we looked at how the sons of Noah, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and how they were like those, those um, branch trunks of the rest of the family tree of the entire world out from that point. And and chapter 10 of Genesis starts to lay out all the different people groups based on the sons of Shem and their grandsons and their great-grandsons and where they went and what they did and whatnot. 
And, and as we have looked at these, this, this series of the God of the ages, it has informed us of the past and how it affects us today. And as I said last week, we looked at these descendants of Noah, and even with all of the diversity in our world of how it all comes from a common root, and it comes from a common experience that was opened up with our understanding of the world, with the epoch that was opened with the event of the flood, and that is we have a common experience and a common understanding that we need salvation from a judgment a horrific judgment that is coming, a merciful salvation. And like the descendants of Noah, we see in our world today that there are different ancestries, but the same source in God as our creator. We see that there are different behaviors, but there is the same standard of righteousness that we're held to. And we see that there might be different futures But there is the same eternity that we will all spend in either heaven or in hell. We looked at the different people groups. Uh, As I mentioned, they're, they're mentioned in chapter 10 that spawned from the sons of Noah. We looked at how mainly we sitting here are descendants of Japheth. Uh, and, and Japheth's descendants moved up into Turkey, Asia Minor, and, and the southern coast of Europe. You can see that described in Genesis 10. And, and um, the sons of Shem uh, developed into the Middle East, and uh, the, one of the descendants of Shem, we, we'll kind of get into this next week when we, we break into Abraham and God's covenant with him. One of the descendants of Shem is Eber, from whom the Hebrews came from. But, but, and, and, and then the, we looked at the descendants of Ham. That, that's, and as you can see on the, the map there, go into the Arabian Peninsula and into Africa and such. Uh, but let me read for you about this man named Nimrod that you can learn about in Genesis 10. You can see in Genesis 10, starting in verse 8, uh, a descendant of Ham, Cush, fathered Nimrod. It says he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And t- verse 10 says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. And from, from that land, he went into Assyria and ben- built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. And if you, you look up here on the map, and it's, it's, it's a little bit cloudy here, but you can see these white cities here um, above where it says Shem. These are the cities that are listed off, um, attributed to Nimrod. Now, we mentioned this last week, understanding that in Genesis 10, these aren't necessarily saying that this one man did all of this, but it is attributing his legacy and his ancestry, the people that descend from him, to Nimrod. All right, but, but you've got major cities of Babel, which becomes Babylon, and Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrians and whatnot. So this is a major figure and more, we'll, we'll say more about him as we move further. But remember that Genesis is the book of beginnings. 
Okay, it is the book of beginnings. And each epoch in Genesis 1 through 12 begins with an event. A new epoch opens up with it begins something new. And the new epoch that we see happen that we will look at this morning in Genesis 11 is an epic of diversity of language and culture, which we can identify with. We can identify with that side of the event that begins that epic. And the, and the event that begins that epic, as you're probably well aware of, is the Tower of Babel. It's the event of the Tower of Babel where all humanity from that point forward is divided by language and, and culture. So really, even though it comes in chapter 11, after all this description in chapter 10 of the different descendants of the sons of Noah and where they went and, and how they were dispersed, chapter 11 is like that prequel right? It's like that movie that comes out after the trilogy that kind of says, oh, this is how it all started. This is how it all began. That's what chapter 11 is. It's like that prequel to all of that dispersion that is described in chapter 10. So we look back at chapter 11 and learn from it the cause of man's diversity. And so we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, recall that several times, even beginning with the first creation of man and woman, when they're told, be fruitful and multiply, which, I'm sorry, I'd be like, you know, um, there was a responsibility that came with that and, and spread out and fill the earth. And, and as they were to do that, they were to take their calling to exercise God's dominion over the earth as they did that. And here, and we see that repeated at different times. And it was repeated to Noah and his sons there on Mount Ararat uh, as they exited the ark and they, and they worshiped the Lord. They were told again, spread out, fill the earth. But yet we see here that, that they come to the land of Shinar, and we'll read here what their motivation is, but they settled there. And we pick up, oh, I'm sorry, and let me read something from Josephus. Josephus was fascinating about this uh, in his writings in his antiquities. Understand, Josephus was a historian that, that lived just years after Jesus did, and he is uh, one of the most um, uh, helpful historians, a Jewish historian, to helping us to understand uh, the nature of Jewish culture and of the Old Testament. He did, obviously, his writings don't carry the authority of Scripture, but they correspond and correlate to it. But he describes that many descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth were afraid to leave the mountain. And he describes that God even gave them different sets of commands. Send colonies out. Go and spread over the earth. But they were afraid to leave the mountains because they did not believe God when he said, I will not flood the earth again. 
They wanted to stay on high ground. And they believed that God actually, uh, Josephus says this, that it was a common belief that God did not have their best interest in mind, that he was trying to weaken them as a people by getting them to spread out and be smaller groups. So going back to what we read in Genesis 11, verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in, in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Lest we actually have to do what God told us to do. Again, Josephus here lays the blame for their thinking in this way on the shoulders of Nimrod and his government. Where Josephus writes, now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and a great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe their blessings to God as if it was through his means, God's means, that they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power, on Nimrod's power. He also said that he would get back at God if God should have a mind to drown the world again. How would he, how would he do this? He would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would have his revenge on God for destroying their forefathers. And so we see in Genesis 11, God's response to this. In verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And then we have another curious uh, a statement here, it, 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 we understand it through our understanding of the triune God, where he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, over the, uh, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so we hear, here in verse 7, we have another opportunity to listen in on the divine conference of the triune God. We, we saw this before in God's original design to describe uh, described God's original design for man described as by committee where we read in verses verse 26 of Genesis 1 that God said let us father son and holy spirit let us make man in our image after our likeness we read in Genesis 3:22 seeing God's broken hearted recognition of the disaster of sin where he says then God said 
Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And so here in verse 7, it's a God's triune discussion of how to sovereignly correct the globally rebellious path of mankind. And the result is universal diversity. You know, there's a buzz phrase today, unity of diversity. Unity of diversity, which basically means um, uh, it's not pantheism. It's the other P word. I can't remember it, but moving on. It, it means basically we want people to be as diverse. We want to celebrate all that diversity so that we can, uh, well, because there's no absolutes in it. If there's one thing that holds us together, it's the fact that we are diverse. The, the words like divert, universe, converse, the, these come from the root term vert. It's a, it's, a, it's a Latin word, vert, which means to turn, to turn. To, to divert is to turn in more than one direction. The universe is a combination. It, it's to bring all the turnings, all the possibilities into one mass, to one group, to understand all that exists physically is the universe. It's a combination of all the elements, all the possibilities. And so university, a university is a unifying of diverse subjects. What we see happening in Genesis 11 is uh, the tragedy is it is a universal diversion by the people that God had created, that, that, that their attention has been turned away from the answer. The answer is obedience to God. The answer is walking in an obedient relationship with God, a relationship with him of trust and obedience. And today we see the same diversion away from what the real problem is. And the real problem is that we have diverted away from God's plan for us by sin, and it is sin. And the answer today is not to celebrate that diversion. The answer today is conversion. Conversion, a change from separation to a united relationship with God. See, the enemy wants to divert away from the answer. The answer is for a person to convert back to a relationship with God through Christ. A term that we hear a lot about today is globalism. Globalism could be described as a universal operation or planning of economic and foreign policy. Now, without taking some political stance here, uh, just understand what we're seeing here in Genesis 11 is globalism at its finest. Mankind was dead set on emphasizing their collective strength and, and using that strength against the need to obey God. And they took aim at being their own God, determined to dethrone God by mob rule. I appreciate what one writer said. He says, what they prided themselves in became their downfall. And what they feared the most came on them. 
They're, they're a, a picture of what Romans 1, 21 through 22 informs us that mankind does in our sinful state. That although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Foolish enough to think that even though God brought enough water on the earth to bring it 20-some feet above the highest mountain, that if they could just build a tower tall enough and waterproof it, that they could disobey him without consequence. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I want to challenge you from these, these, this, these verses 1 through 9 here this morning. First of all, be skeptical of man's rebellious progress. Be skeptical of man's rebellious progress. We read here that they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This was likely a new development, kiln-dried building material. Okay, and they also made their tower judgment-proof. They, uh, water-resistant tar for mortar. That's what bitumen is. I had never heard anybody confirm that for me until I read Josephus that the idea was, let's use mortar that will not be washed away by water. He said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You know, I mentioned... Uh, trying to explain life before the internet or, or cell phones, you know, this sort of progress that we see. And not all progress is bad, for sure. But, but think about the progress of the internet. Think about social media. How social have we become as a result of social media? I mean, seriously, just observe a family sitting at a restaurant. Have you seen this? A family sitting at a restaurant that everybody is on their own phone, just waiting for the food to get there? I mean, they're posting pics of their food, they're updating their statuses, yet at the same time ignoring the relationships around them. Every, we, we are in constant um, challenge of being somewhere else and not where we are. You know, like I said, it used to be that a phone was at home and, and it was, like I said, attached to the wall and everyone. Now that everyone has their own phones, um, there's no more, you know, a parent picking up the phone. Hello. Hey. Uh, yeah, they're right here. Hey, Billy, how's your parents? I haven't talked to them in a while. How are you doing? So what's going on? Oh, it's good to hear. Okay, yeah, here's Mikey. Here you go. Everybody gets their own calls. Everybody has their own relationships. Everybody is dealing with, and and 10-year-olds are dealing with life issues in a vacuum without the involvement of their parents, without wise counsel. I, I saw this as a youth pastor. 
Girls end up sending pics of themselves and living in fear and shame. School bullying has become cyberbullying without anyone knowing of, of the disastrous effects until it's often too late. Now, again, the internet is not the enemy. Cell phones are not the enemy. They are not the problem. The problem is in here. The problem is how, with our sinful hearts, how we view progress, how we use progress. We take the good and guard against the bad of progress. But how do we use wisdom with regard to the world's rebellious progress? Like those who built the tower couldn't do so and obey God at the same time. Man's rebellious ideas cannot exist without the truth as God has revealed it. They cannot coexist with the truth as God has revealed it. Mankind's rebellion concerning sexuality and gender cannot exist with God's truth. And so it must be silenced. I just finished Greg Laurie's book, Jesus Revolution. I really uh, encourage you to read it. But in one of the closing chapters, he writes, the much vaunted sexual revolution of the 60s seems quaint in a world where mainstream platforms like Facebook offer four or five dozen different gender options for you to choose from in order to identify yourself. Redefinitions of marriage, he says, sexuality and gender itself are pushing normalization across the board, soon available in preschools near you. End quote. In mankind's rebellion concerning human life, as trivial, cannot exist without, with God's truth. Because God's truth tells us that human life is unique and worthy of protection. But I don't know if you're aware of this, but a physicist in China over the last couple of weeks announced genetically engineered twins were born. And the geneticist community, which is uh, far less ethical than than I would hope that they would be, are, are calling this step unethical, irresponsible, and sloppy. And there are already seen to be uh, ill effects and whatever effects that will be experienced by these twins will also be passed on to generations following. Mankind's rebellion in the name of progress cannot coexist with God's truth. Secondly, I want to challenge you to be confident of God's concern. We read that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Josephus describes the tyranny that ruled Babel, this human civilization here, uh, that was really the first human civilization and city and such. It says, now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. And they built a tower, neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work 
Boy, that's an epoch we don't understand. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed it, in a, and it grew very, um, very high sooner than anyone could expect. Another uh, epic we don't understand, a government project that was ahead of schedule. But they were accomplishing this. They were accomplishing this on the guise and under the understanding that it is cowardice to submit to God. And we better build this lest he force us to. This is actually, we've talked about this before, and this, here, I'm going to geek out on you here as far as uh, Bible interpretation. This passage is a chiism, okay? There's your technical term. Just go ahead and forget it. But what that means is it's a Hebrew way of explaining a situation or explaining a principle, and it, it, it basically moves in a parabolic motion. It, it explains one thing going up one side and it explains it sort of in a parallel way going down the other side. But what's most important in a chiasm is what's in the middle. I've described this before like being a double stairway with a landing at the top. Okay? And so the description at the beginning of this passage describes the one language, building a tower so, it will not, so that they will not be scattered And it descends on the other side of the passage talking about God's confusing their language. The work on the tower stops. The people are scattered. And so it's the same ideas coming down both sides. And what is in the middle? What is in the middle of the passage? What is up at the landing of that double stairwell here? It is the Lord came down. God came down. And the description here is like describing He's coming down through the clouds and he has to stoop down to see what are these little people doing? It's like if you were going for a walk and, and there's, like a, there's like an anthill and you're just like, oh, anthill. And you have to like, oh, you know, I'm curious. I got time here. And you kind of get down, crouch down. And you're like, what are these little ants doing? That's the idea here. Now, all of their significance, all of their chest pounding, all of this, this is what we're going to do. It says, and God stooped down to see what on earth are these little people doing here? And God's concern is not for his authority. God's concern is not his place in the universe. God's concern is how much man can be deceived. How much is the opportunity for man to be led away in this universal rebellion by a determined government, by a determined civilization to lie and to hide the truth and to divert people from being converted to back into relationship with God? The fact is, ideas have consequences. My family and I were watching something recently about, and they were talking about the uh, tsunami of 2004 uh, in West Asia and West Africa where that devastated countries and coastlands there, killing, um, I think it was um, somewhere between two and 400,000 people. But did you know that, speaking of ideas having consequences, that as the waters of the ocean pulled back away from the shore, 
the islanders or, or coastal people, indigenous people, stood there looking just like, wow, this is amazing. What in the world? And, and because they revered the ocean. They worshiped the ocean. Many people, when they saw that the ocean pulled back, they thought, what a blessing. And they actually ran out into onto sand that previously had been covered with 10 feet of water, and they were collecting fish that had been uh, uh, isolated and that had been stranded as the ocean pulled back, and they were praising the ocean for giving them such a blessing of these fish. Tell me ideas don't have consequences because none of those people had a chance when that tsunami came rolling in. They were swept away by their trust in the very thing that consumed them. If someone thinks that it doesn't matter what religious ideas you believe, they should tell that to the people that ran out to collect the fish. And this, there's a sad fact in churches today even that hold to something that's called an emergent theology. Okay, And what happens here is they approach God and his word much of the same way that some people approach our constitution. They approach it from an evolutionary perspective, thinking we need to let it evolve. We need to let God evolve. We need to let God emerge again. And so they tear away all historical doctrine. They tear away all historic theology. And they even tear away the gospel itself, saying, we need to get rid of anything that's offensive. We need to get rid of the cross. We need to get rid of Jesus' bloody sacrifice. We need to get rid of talk of sin. And we need to expect God to emerge again. And you know what's funny? When you tear away the authority of Scripture, guess who becomes the authority? The teacher. Just like in Nimrod's work and his government's work, in tearing away the authority of God, guess who is going to become the authority? The government. But the greatest body of truth that anyone must believe is found in God's word, and it is the gospel. It is the sacrifice of Christ. It is the fact that sin has consequence. It is the fact that sin separates man from God, but sin's penalty was paid for by Christ, and that that sacrifice, that death and resurrection of Christ is available to anyone to apply to themselves to be able to be converted not diverted by their sinful practices, but to be converted back into a relationship with God through Christ. Through the gospel, we come to see that God has paved the way for knowing him by Christ. And we aren't as susceptible to the lies of tyrants that wish to eliminate God's influence because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That's what the enemy wants to divert people's attention from. And it's most sad to me when it comes from the pulpit and when it comes from churches. And it even happens in Montgomery County. Lastly, I want to challenge you, be hopeful for God's corrective action. 
In this divine conference, God says, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And it says, so the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth and they left their building, the city. God, where are my plans? Where, are my, where is my agenda? They must have been thinking. This is what would be called a severe mercy. It would be described as not giving us what we deserve, continued separation from God, but graciously giving what they didn't deserve, freedom from this universal rebellion. But why would God make it more difficult then for the gospel to be preached? Why would God make it so that we have culture upon culture upon culture? That the gospel, that, 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 that the understanding, and it's not that the gospel isn't universally applied, but for those of us that want to take the gospel to those cultures, we need to change ourselves, not change the gospel, but change ourselves to be able to communicate it. Well, like most why questions, we're not told why God would make it harder like that, but we are shown what God can miraculously do. And what do we, where do we see that? At Pentecost, right? Where God is saying, you know what? I can overcome the consequence of man's actions. I can overcome what man deserves. Where the gospel was preached and people from different tongues and different languages heard it in their language. Pentecost was a signal that God is restoring, God is remaking, God is rebuilding what man has ruined. You know, the teens and the 20-somethings of the 1960s, as I read about in in, uh, the book Jesus Revolution, in this generation, all authority was rejected and blamed for, authority was blamed for the Vietnam War and Watergate and the waste of materialism. There was a search for enlightenment and for a hope, there was a hope for world peace. And it led a generation though to pluralism, to pantheism, to immorality, and the worship of men who acknowledged that they were bigger than Jesus. 1967 marked the summer of love in San Francisco. It was a quest for freedom from traditional definitions of social norms. And no one thought of what had been warned of thousands of years earlier by, you know, truth can come even from unbelievers. The warning came from Confucius that when words lose their meaning, people lose their freedom. And in their quest for freedom, there was a loss of what is right and what is wrong. The use of drugs led to addiction and even theft and murders, just as they often do. The loss of how sex should be approached led to STDs. The loss of the definition of a greater purpose and a goodness led to disillusionment. But what also took place out of the chaotic cauldron of cultural clash of the 60s was revival. God took gracious, corrective action. And so many of you are the result of that. Again, Greg Laurie talks in his book, Jesus Revolution, about how today is like the 60s culture on steroids. 
You read, reports of terrorism abroad or at home fill our news feeds every week. Sex trafficking and human slavery are not just the scourge of brothels and faraway labor camps, but in suburban America. Drugs were not just a threat in the 60s and 70s. Today's crisis of addiction, narcotics trafficking, of opioid and other narcotics are as grim as ever. Today's celebration of diversity, tolerance, and tolerance tolerates everything except the exclusive claim, truth claims. Jesus's, the Jesus movement's one-way hand sign, as, is, um, as in there is one way to heaven through Christ, would be derided as offensive hate speech today, with Jesus people carted off to jail or community service or sensitivity training workshops. Still, he continues, let's not get wigged out over culture wars, or the increasing marginalization of biblical Christianity. This is a time like all eras on our planet of great opportunity. The upheaval continually combines an odd blend of cynicism and longing, ugliness and beauty, despair and hope. The one thing we know, Jesus looks upon our world and loves its people. His holy affection floods toward all, every tribe and individual on this terrestrial ball, and he calls those who follow him to be the visible manifestation of his love and his truth. That's a challenge that we cannot meet without humility, personal and corporate repentance, and a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. And he continues. Sorry for the long quote, but I love this book. What would a new Jesus revolution look like today? All we know is that it would be scary, exhilarating, messy, passionate, and surprising. We should not pray for revival unless we are ready to be turned upside down, our heads and our pockets and our lives shaken out. Whatever God chooses to do, we know a few things about what happens when revival comes, regardless of its time period or cultural context. And I was so blessed when I read this. First... He says, God comes down. The weight of his presence is unmistakable. Revival is no human endeavor. It's an eclectic, electric, sorry, encounter with the other. The eternal one who lives from everlasting to everlasting. The God who is beyond our dimensions, who brings about the conviction of sin, just as as at Pentecost when the apostle Peter preached and his listeners were cut to the heart and responded, what must we do to be saved? I know we're going just a little bit long here. And this summarizes for us that we should be hopeful for God's corrective action. But I, I just want to ask you this. What is the role of government then in guiding where its people will place their hope? Um, there is a temptation in any government like Nimrod, described as being Uh, to bring government into tyranny. And tyranny is seeing no other way. Remember what Josephus said? Seeing no other way of turning men from fear of God, but to bring them into constant dependence on his power, on government's power. Let me read for you words spoken by Benjamin Franklin. 
on July 4th, 1787. And I'll close with this. He says, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his, his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, speaking of the scriptures, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And he says, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. That's the role of government. And that's what we should pray for, for our government. This has been Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. We are a fellowship of followers of Christ who seek to make it about Him and His gospel mission in our daily lives. And if this message has been helpful for you, please feel free to subscribe and share Applying the Bible with a friend.